Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you all for being here this evening. My name is David Brophy. I, um, I'm a, a lecturer in the Department of History. Um, it's my pleasure tonight to introduce and chair this, uh, this event. Um, thank you, of course, to Sydney Ideas for, for putting it on. Um, and thank you, too, to the China Studies Centre uh, for sponsoring another big uh, Sydney Ideas event. So it's been, um, it's been three days now since, uh, since May the 4th. Um, May the 4th, uh, the centenary of May the 4th, an event that kicked off a period of activism uh, in China that is commonly considered to uh, constitute the genesis of a lot of the political and intellectual radicalism of China's 20th, uh, 20th century. It's also uh, May the 4th that turned the, the Tiananmen Square into a site of protest uh, in Beijing. So it was natural then um, that um, 30 years ago, uh, in a couple of weeks from now, uh, students in 1989 gathered uh, in Tiananmen Square, um, and we celebrate, commemorate, uh, in a couple of weeks, the, uh, the suppression of the 1989 democracy movement as well. So obviously it's a year of anniversaries. Uh, at a time like this, it's common for the discussion to turn to questions of uh, historical memory, questions of, of commemoration or, or lack uh, thereof, to debate the meaning uh, of these events, both at the time and, and for us here today. And that's part of um, what we intend to do this evening. Um, but we're also interested in, in student activism uh, today. Uh, we, we're living at a time, of course, where we're, I think, quite conscious of increasing levels of repression uh, in various forms uh, in China today. But, but nonetheless, within that, uh, we can find uh, examples uh, of brave individuals seeking to revive forms of, of student activism uh, in China uh, today. Um, and of course, if we zoom out to the wider Chinese-speaking world, we, we've seen new generations of activists emerge in uh, places like Hong Kong uh, and, and Taiwan. And although in a slightly different vein, but nonetheless connected in the, the globalized university system uh, that we have here in Australia today, um, we're increasingly talking about the role of Chinese students here in Australia uh, in campus life and, and campus politics uh, as well. So there's, um, there's a huge amount to discuss um, in an event like this. We have a, um, an ideal group of scholars to, to help us do that this evening. Um, so I'm just going to run through the introductions. Um, I'll just introduce everyone at once, and then I'll explain how the, um, the event is going to um, uh, play out from here. So um, we're very lucky tonight to welcome Professor Fabio Lanza uh, from the University of Arizona. Um, he's a historian of modern China. He's the author of, of two books, in fact, which are very relevant to the discussion uh, here to, tonight. The first, uh, in 2010, um, Beyond the Gate, um, a study of the May 4th events, and the, you know, a, a, a perspective on the history of the, the student as a modern social and political category uh, in China today. And also, more, more recently, a book entitled The End of Concern, um, which among other things, was about the impact of the 1960s student radicalization on the China field itself uh, in the West. So it's a contribution to the self-knowledge um, of, uh, of that field. So in the first half hour, we're going to listen to a keynote address um, from, from Fabio, and then we'll bring a few more guests into, uh, into the discussion. Um, for the panel tonight, we have Professor Timothy Cheek, um, he is the uh, Lewis Cha Chair in Chinese Research at the University of British Columbia. Uh, he has uh, many achievements to his name uh, in the field of uh, modern Chinese history and the study of intellectuals uh, in China, just to mention a couple. Um, his books include uh, Propaganda and Culture uh, in Mao's China, 1997, uh, and another, The Intellectual in Modern Chinese History, uh, 2015. For those interested in contemporary intellectual life in China today, he has a, an internet project. Um, it's entitled Reading and Writing the Chinese Dream, uh, where you can read a lot of contemporary writing um, from the Chinese language internet um, in English, uh, English translation. Uh, we also have Professor Ruth Hayhoe um, from the University of Toronto. 
Um, she is a scholar of comparative education, has long experience of, of teaching in uh, Hong Kong uh, and China. She actually was serving in the Canadian Embassy in 1989, uh, has, has um, direct experience uh, of those events. Um, and I want to mention that she's uh, visiting Sydney uh, as a guest of the, the Shark program. This is the, um, the Sydney Social Sciences and Humanities Advanced Research Centre. Um, uh, I should have also mentioned that Professor Timothy Cheek uh, is visiting us. Thank you to, thanks to the Department of Chinese Studies. He is a distinguished, um, a distinguished fellow at the moment in the Department of Chinese Studies. Finally, um, rounding out the panel, we have um, Professor Wan Ning Sun uh, from UTS. Um, Professor um, Sun is a scholar of media studies, uh, cultural studies. She's written books on the lives of migrant workers uh, in China. Um, she's currently doing a lot of research as well as a lot of public commentary on Chinese language media uh, here in Australia today, including um, the, uh, you know, the, um, the engagement of Chinese students on the um, Chinese language media here in, in Australia. So we're going to hear from them uh, after uh, Fabio Lanza's uh, keynote address. Uh, but for the time being, would you please join me to welcome Fabio to the stage. Okay, thank you very much for coming and thank you for having me here. Um, as David mentioned, uh, the decades that end in nine, in the number nine, are always uh, heavy with commemoration for anybody who works on China. The anti-imperialist uh, student demonstration of uh, May 4th, 1919 mark the beginning of what's, what's called modern Chinese history in uh, most Chinese textbook. Uh, in 1949, uh, October 1st, uh, Mao Zedong proclaimed the founding of the People's Republic of China. And uh, as David mentioned, on June 4th, 1989, uh, the repression of the protests of the Beijing Spring uh, concluded the first uh, revolution of 1989, uh, a year to see the top, saw the toppling of most socialist uh, regimes. So we are now a century after, after May 4th, uh, 30 years after 1989, and 70 years since the founding of the People's Republic of China. So it seems obvious, almost due, that we should go back to these events, uh, recall uh, their historical relevance, and offer, if possible, new explanation, new interpretations. However, and this might seem like a strange question to ask, given the place and the occasion we are, it, we are at, uh, is it really necessary or even useful to commemorate those events about every 10 years? Why should it be? What position do they occupy today in the historical memory and in whose memory? Now, we can set aside October 1st, 1949, which is a date inscribed in the functioning of the government structure celebrated in China with parades and days of work. And whose centrality is guaranteed the very persistence of the party state founding on that day. But uh, in 1989, uh, this is from The Simpson, by the way, the events of 1989 are still very much the target of a ferocious and continuous uh, censorship within China. A censorship which has produced a form of generalized amnesia which is at least in part sustained by the tacit collaboration of a population that has learned um, that it's dangerous to remember things and has accepted the comfort of forgetfulness. Now, the forced silence over the last uh, student movement of the 20th centuries cannot but have repercussion on the first student movement of the modern era. So today, May 4th, despite being inscribed in the official history of the Communist Party and celebrated as the uh, fountainhead of Chinese Marxism is a distant, uh, faded, worn-out uh, reference for the large majority of the Chinese people. So a piece of news from uh, a few weeks ago uh, gives the sense of how vacuous and empty 
uh, any allusion to uh, May 4th is uh, today within the bureaucratic discourse. Um, in a survey conducted in March among uh, graduate students at Beijing University, uh, titled The Condition of the Development of University Students, one of the questions in the survey addressed the May 4th anniversary. The question was, in, 19, in 2019, we celebrate the centennial of May 4th. The May 4th movement established patriotism, democracy, the May 4th scientific spirit. Your position with regards to the following statement is, and students are asked to agree, disagree, strongly agree, strongly disagree. Uh, these are, I'll put them up there, the statements that the students were asked to comment upon. Now, if you read through the list, I won't read the, the list of things. You get the idea that there's nothing there. This is just empty, vacuous reference to youth energy and nationalism. Um, so if you read this, it's clear today that in China, it's not obvious at all what it is commemorated when the May 4 movement is commemorated or whether that commemoration means anything at all. Outside of China, uh, in the West, uh, the question of how we should remember here today, May 4th, 1919, or even June 4th, 1989, uh, does not seem to me a less complicated one. Uh, many, many years ago, an old professor uh, chided me uh, when I was when I told him that I wanted to do my dissertation, my PhD dissertation on the May 4 movement. Uh, he told me that nothing happened in 1919. Uh, and if one wants to play Davis advocate, uh, the demonstration in May and June 1919 against the Versailles Treaty did not have any real effect in terms of geopolitics. Uh, former German colonies went to Japan and didn't go to China. The grip of imperialism did not significantly loosen up. And we could make the same evaluation about 1989. The massacre of June 4th erased the political aspiration of the spring, and the economic success of the reforms in the following decades seemed to cynically confirm the wisdom of the party. The reforms proved that capitalist consumerism did not need any democratic transformation to survive and prosper. As uh, the poet Yang Liang uh, wrote, 1989 was truly a perfectly ordinary year. This is the, his poem called 1989, was written, I think, in 1992. Uh, the last line is the one I cite. There is perhaps also a personal and subjective reason why we, people who work on China, devote a lot of attention specifically to the event of 1919 or 1989. These are events in which the protagonist uh, seems to be people like us, students and intellectuals. And specifically, students and intellectuals standing up in opposition against the state, bureaucracy, the corruption of people in power. So to commemorate and to retell 1919 and 1989 confirms preconceived notions uh, which are as difficult to admit as to eradicate. The idea, for example, that intellectuals are the engine of change, that they represent society's highest aspiration, that they are, maybe we are too, potentially capable of heroic actions. In the current China situation, remembering those events gives hope not only that political change might be possible, but also reaffirms indirectly that the spark of that change resides among those Chinese, we better know, other intellectuals. But as Tim Cheek has clearly argued, uh, this is a distorted vision. The century of Chinese activism we celebrate today does indeed confirm that Chinese intellectuals and Chinese students have been brave and rebellious. But not anymore or uh, more frequently than other citizens, workers, peasants. 
have waged revolution of unimaginable proportion. The history of the last century also tells us that in the large majority of the cases, and for the large part of time, Chinese intellectuals, like us, are not very rebellious. Uh, that they are not constantly occupying streets and squares. And that they can be more commonly found uh, working within the state or close to power, as bureaucrats, planners, and yes, teachers. It is consolatory and perhaps inspiring to celebrate the heroism of the past, but it also might be misleading. Now, having devoted a large chunk of my life to student activism and large part of intellectual production, specifically to May 4th and 1989, uh, I don't believe that nothing happened in 1919 or 1989 that the old professor was wrong, and Yang Yang verses should be read as tragic, uh, poetic irony. Uh, however, after having spent a long time working on May 4th, uh, I decided to, to leave the topic behind uh, and move to other subjects and other time periods. And this was in part due to the obvious fatigue that comes, you know, after working on the same topic for a long time. But the fatigue was also intensified by the fact that uh, that having to deal with the, strat the, the fact of having to deal with the stratified historiograph historiographical inconstration that have solidified around the Mayfair movement in China as well in the West, precisely because it, it is identified as a point of origin both of the narrative leading to the party state and to the one that justify the, its op the opposition to the party state. So in order to provide a new, more convincing interpretation of those events, it is therefore necessary to dig through all these interpretative layers, which are now a century old, and to confront stale but stubbornly reproduced characterization. Then maybe that's what uh, that's why we need anniversary, especially the big ones with round numbers. Um, maybe we need those moments of collective reflection to pose again questions that have been left unanswered, to center our gaze more precisely, in this case, on the political legacy that the Mayford movement bequeathed to the following century and potentially to today's China. Now, to retrieve some sense out of that legacy. Uh, we have to start by challenging the meaning and the very solidity of ideas and concepts that appear otherwise uh, transparent and that mark the supposed continuity of this century of activism. One of them, for example, is democracy. But even terms like intellectual and student are far from stable notions. And if there is rather a recurring trait in the history of Chinese student activism, that can be identified precisely in the continuous struggle over the meaning of those terms, over the nature, the character, the very subjectivity of students as political actors. The tension, this tension, is constitutive of the May 4 movement and the legacy of May 4 is for complex, contradictory, and multiple. The movement, the Mayfair movement of 1919, coincided with the creation of student as a political category. The so-called new culture movement, uh, which precedes and includes the Mayfair movement, was a sustained attempt by young intellectuals to propose a radical rethinking of the entire Chinese cultural heritage, of what China really meant of its relationship to the world, and of the very figure of the intellectual. Students, and students are intellectuals in China, uh, were integral part of the movement as both subjects and objects of their thinking. While there have always been people who studied in China, the modern category of students emerged only with the introduction of Western-style university and Western-style schools. It was indeed these modern students trained in new pedagogical institutions, who for the first time 
marched in the street of Beijing on May 4, 1918, to protest the terms of the Versailles Treaty. This was the moment when students emerged as a category of modern Chinese politics. As uh, Professor uh, Tai Jinghua pointed out, May 4th shaped the basic model for modern mass movements and for a civil disobedience in the public sphere. That's a simplistic model that can be summarized as such. University student protests in the street of Beijing, gathering in Tiananmen Square. Beijing citizen supports them. The movements expand to other cities. Workers, especially workers in Shanghai, join the movement, increasing its revolutionary scope. That's the model. It's a simplistic model, but it's a model that's continuously reproduced. And this model identifies a series of figures and privileged locations, charging them with political and historical significance for the century to come. First and foremost, the students themselves, selfless and patriotic, Conscious of the nation, spark of the revolution, preachers and teachers devoted to awaken the masses. Then Tiananmen Square, which in 1919 was not much of a square, by the way. Um, but Tiananmen Square in 1919 was marked as a sacred location for revolutionary history, always contending between the celebration of the past and the revolution of the present. And finally, some schools, first and foremost, Peking University, uh, Peita, the first modern university in China, which is, till this day, unseasonally and contradictorily celebrated, both for its central role in the development of a nation-state and for its tradition of indomitable criticism of the powers that be. This is the model that's been absorbed into the official history of the, of the Communist Party and of the uh, Chinese state. Uh, party historiography, for example, sees the movement of students out of the school and into the streets in 1919 as part of a reaching out of intellectuals towards the proletarian masses, which was crucial for the revolution to come. One of the reliefs in the monuments of the people's uh, heroes in Tiananmen Square synthesizes this model in this image. When you see uh, students wearing long gowns uh, haranguing a crowd of workers, peasants, and women. In the stone of the movement, the legacy of May Ford is to literally inscribe as an essential part of the constitution of the party state. However, as I mentioned, this uh, model is uh, traversed by contradiction and tension since its very inception. During the May 4 movement in 1919, the student presented themselves in opposition to the state, but they resolutely refused to identify their protest as a demonstration of students. This is to say, as an expression of a certain social category. In their speeches, in their essay, in their documents, students repeated over and over that they were not acting as students, but as citizens that they were embodying the sheer fear for the future of the nation, a preoccupation that was unconnected to their social status or any educational level. In the demonstration of 1919, students acted politically by crossing borders. Uh, in May and June, students left the schools and moved into the streets. And by so doing, they displace politics. They made clear the politics had moved out of its proper places. In 1918, it was instead the state uh, that defined the protest as student, as a student movement, and that deployed the characterization of protest as student protest to justify the repression. The government says, you know, students are young reckless, ignorant of the complexity of the adult world. Their organized protests can then be dismissed as manifestation of what was called the psychological instability of the youth. By getting mixed up with politics and marching into the streets, the government critics argued, students had also abdicated what was supposed to be their only duty, which was to study and improve themselves for the sake of the nation. 
Government repression in 1919 aimed at putting students back into their proper place, back to classroom and campuses, and away from streets and squares, where they could meet and join up forces with other social groups. But also back to just being student, concerned only with student tasks and duties. So in repressing the protest of May and June 1919, the government deployed what I call a strategy of separation, separating students from the rest of the people, youth from adults, and the place devoted to study and discuss politics from the public space of politics as organized action. Now, this is one of the crucial tensions that traverses this century of student activism in China. On the one hand, you have a model of activism centered around the mythological idea of students, and, you know, embodiment of enlightened patriotism, a model that very easily subsumed uh, within the state narrative, and it is indeed at the center of the legitimacy of both the, the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party uh, in Taiwan. Uh, a model which is, at the same time, uh, potentially quite comfortable uh, and convenient for intellectuals themselves, as it sort of confirms their privileged role in the revolutionary legacy. On the other hand, may Ford give us an historical case in which it was exactly the voluntary overcoming of social categories that allowed the students to be most innovating and revolutionary. In other words, the student's decision not to behave as students, but to insist they were citizens, was, for the state, the most radical element of their protest. And it's not by chance that in later instances of study, uh, student activists throughout the century, repression followed the same strategy of separation, the same strategy that was inaugurated in the May 4 movement. For example, in 1966, uh, students answer Mao Zedong's appeal to wage a cultural revolution by leaving the schools and the classroom, going out into the city, striking alliances with other students and other people, taking the political debates into the street in the form of you know, small character big character posters uh, that that's about, and creating independent political organizations that were made by students but not limited to students, the, the Red Guards. The government at the time uh, reacted by trying to reduce this political struggle to an academic debate, uh, driving the student back into the classroom where they were supposed to belong. In 1989, students asked for and obtained the support of Chinese citizens. Uh, taxi drivers, small business owners, workers, journalists, policemen, and even monks uh, march at their side. Yet, those students in 89 never gave up their own self-identification as students, leaders of the movement, voices of the people. But what truly worried the government in 1989 was the possibility that this movement could spread to other social classes, that it could morph from a student protest to a true mass movement. Particularly troubling in 1989 was the presence of a small group of workers in Tiananmen Square. Uh, workers went so far as to organize an independent workers' union. Uh, it's not surprising then the repression after June 4th in 89 was much more uh, intense and crueler uh, towards workers and non-students rather than towards the students themselves. So, I've spoken so far of this idea of a century of Chinese activism. But what we celebrate uh, this year is, is a short century. Uh, the massacre of June 4, 1989, signaled the, viol the violent end of student as a category of politics precisely because the legacy and the position of students were at the core of the protest of 1989. 
The demonstration of 1989 laid claims to the legacy of 1919, and so a calculated deployment of the repertoire evolved since May 4th. The connection between 1989 and 1989 were visible, for example, in the use of specific keywords, science and democracy, uh, or specific place, Tiananmen, first and foremost, and of the centrality of the date of May 4th, when a massive demonstration led an enormous amount of people to Tiananmen Square. Uh, despite the difference between 1919 and 1989, it's evident that the, 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 the protester in 1989 stated a direct connection with their predecessors 70 years earlier. They fully embraced the symbolical and historical connection between students and the nation state. Uh, and reference to the May 4 movement were used to legitimize, to legitimize the right of contemporary students to be heard and to be respected. The repression of June 4th broke this symbolic bond between the students and the nation state. Violence removed any ambiguity and affirmed the student as a category of politics existed only in the past, that they were history. After June 4, 1989, the symbolic repertoire of student activism seems to have been made practically and symbolically unavailable. In the last three decades, Chinese students have been mentioned primarily as either victim or beneficiaries of the economic reform, as either apathetic or enthusiastic participants in the neoliberal transformation of Chinese society. And there did not seem to be any chance of seeing students again step into the political stage, at least not until a few months ago. Since last summer, a group of students have again become protagonists of a political struggle, mobilizing in support of workers in the southern city of Shenzhen, where the employees of a private company named Jazik have launched a brave and unexpected campaign uh, to organize an independent union. Um, the campaign started in May 2018 and eventually elicited the reaction of party authorities who uh, came in and repressed uh, the movement uh, on, on July 27, arresting uh, about 30 workers. It was then, after July 27, 2018, that hundreds of students from the most prestigious university in China signed a petition in support of the workers, and about 20 of them went physically down to Shenzhen to offer the support in person. Uh, in August, uh, police riots in Shenzhen and Beijing led to the arrest of about 50 people, among workers, students, and activists, who had organized demonstrations in support of the JSEC employees. Uh, some of them are still under, are still in jail, and all of them are under uh, close uh, surveillance. Now, these are peculiar students. Uh, most of them belong to Marxist study society. They're students who vow, quote, to be good students of Chairman Mao forever and to work hard in our studies of Marxism and Mao Zedong thought to take, it, to take it in like spiritual sustenance. These students speak a language directly derived from party rhetoric. But in their expression, in their statements, the Marxist reference to class, labor, equality are infused with new meanings and become indictments of the Chinese government, accused of betraying those ideals. For example, in their petition uh, in support of the JZK employee, the students accused the officer who repressed the workers' movement of showing contempt for the rule of law, which one of the cardinal tenets of uh, uh, socialism and Chinese characteristics. They accuse them of violating the leadership role of the working class, one of the governing philosophy of the Chinese Communist Party. They accuse them indirectly of jeopardizing the achievement of Xi Jinping's uh, Chinese dream. In November, the authorities of Peking University accused the Marxist student of criminal activities. And in December, they placed the Marxist Student Association under control of an external committee 
which is basically one step removed from shutting it down altogether. This is uh, the student protesting the taking over of their uh, study society. This is particularly ironic because Peking University is the place where the first Marxist Student Association was founded in 1920, uh, an event that led eventually to the foundation of the Communist Party the following year. Now, these Marxist students are very aware of the uh, contradictory role that students occupy in the official narrative of the party state. And they deploy a reference to the narrative, and specifically to May 4th, in their political statements, showing a consummate ability, not only of turning this piece of party rhetoric to their advantage, but also of rescuing new meanings from a stale tradition. Uh, U.S. scene, uh, with a Peking University graduate and a workers' rights activist, now disappeared apparently, uh, wrote in August 19 an open letter to, to Xi Jinping. And in that letter, she responded to critics who had accused the students of being, like their predecessor of 1919, anti-state. I put some quotes up. Uh, first, in this letter, she redeploys the usual uh, phraseology about the importance of May 4th, uh, its role in the formation of the CCP, and she even cites Xi Jinping's encouragement to carry forward the spirit of the May 4th movement. But then, in a deft move, and I've got the next sentence, um, she reinscribed the students and worker struggles for fairness and justice as the true meaning of the May 4th spirit in the present situation and rebukes her critics for having, quote, forgotten the original values of the Chinese Communist Party and of the people's government. In the same way, uh, a petition written by Peking University students in support of the workers uh, after the arrest of uh, July 27, reframe the May for legacy as one in which the workers, and not the students, not the intellectuals, are the protagonists. And they connect it to the present, where, once again, the working class stands at a critical turning point in history. As for Peking University itself, one of the mythical locations of the May 4 narrative, and also the alma mater of most of these Marxist students, its illustrious past is deployed as an unflattering comparison to the ineffective present, reversing sort of the institution celebratory mode, and calling for faithfulness to a true revolutionary legacy. Again, this is U.S. Singh, uh, who calls back uh, the iconic writer Lusun and the example of Toza Peita, Peking University, who dared to speak, dared to fight, as a moral mandate. And then she concludes, as someone from Peking University, I have no excuse to sit by guilt-free as an idle beneficiary of the status quo. The petition by uh, the Peking University students, uh, it's, it's even a starker indictment of the presence of the university. The university is described as rotting, decomposing, while resting on its laurels. And the petitioner calling the students instead to look outside university, to look into the world, in which power and capital are waging a war against the people, a war that will affect the students tomorrow as it affects the workers today. Another crucial characteristic of, of the student message is the acknowledged centrality of the working class in this new movement. They call for a wide alliance and more workers, peasants, lawyers, media people, students, intellectuals, retirees, and leaders who are uh, willing to protect civil rights. And here, and at least in my opinion, lies the perceived danger of this movement. Uh, first, it is centered on the class, the working class, that is if only theoretically, the very source of legitimacy for the Communist Party. The Communist Party is still supposed to represent the workers. Second, the alliance, no matter how aspirational or incomplete between workers and students, signals the possibility of this breaking of social boundaries, of people representing something beyond the immediate interest of their group. 
As I mentioned, that was a crucial part of the legacy bequeathed by the Mayfair movement. And it was also the element in the legacy that always perturbed and made it impossible the full subsumption into a state narrative. It was always, always the element that complicated things. That this challenge to the state is now framed in the name of Marx and Mao makes it even more worrisome for the party state, which under Xi Jinping has pushed to reintroduce the mandatory study of Marxism at all levels. Um, it's, while it's, it is usually means, the study of Marxism in China today means a form of ideological indoctrination enforcing the correct interpretation of socialism, uh, it comes out that if one reads Marx, that there's always the risk that they might end up taking it seriously and then get into trouble for that. Um, one of the Marxist students uh, recalls that only after reading Marx's uh, Wage, Labor, and Capital and other works on political economy, he realized that the culprit for the oppression of workers, quote, was not, only, was not any particular capitalist, but capitalism itself. And he was radicalized by this. So Marxism today, which we tend to portray as a, in China at least, as, as the mute acceptance of the empty words of the party rhetoric, might have a different reality in today's China. For some young students, Marxism offers, once again, a methodology to think about politics, a methodology at the same time involuntarily fostered by and incredibly threatening to the party. Unlike the Tiananmen protests of 1989, China new leftist students are not calling for a change of government. They say they are calling for the Communist Party to return to its own roots and carry out Mao's promise of workers' liberation. That's a much more radical challenge. Now, it's difficult to see what this new wave of students and worker activism will go, what it means. It's very difficult to venture into a forecast about its future. On the one hand, student participation has transformed what was, in a sense, a local movement uh, into a national and international case. And that has given increasing visibility to these workers but it could also have had the unwanted effect of exacerbating the severity and extent of repression. But any evaluation at this stage is, you know, dangerously provisional. But for sure, this is a protest, this is a movement that does not fit the usual explanation centered on intellectuals and democracy. Young idealists who speak the language of Marxism will ally themselves with workers and point the finger at the hardship produced by capitalism are miles away from the still dominant Western dream of a liberal transformation of Chinese society under the push of the market economy. So, as we celebrate this century of activism, maybe it's time to move beyond the simplistic model of the past by looking at the action of today's students as workers, as politics, as their own specific politics, and not as a more or less precise reproduction of the imagined dreams of their predecessors. In my opinion, this will also be the best way to commemorate today the May 4 movement. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Fabio, without any further ado, I'd now like to invite Professor Heiho to the stage to offer some remarks were all, like me, dazzled by the amazing illustrations and reflections, really sophisticated reflections on how we can think about and reinterpret uh, this whole issue of students, universities, and uh, political movements in China. And I just want to keep my comments very short so that you have lots of time to respond. I think there's one fundamental point here, which is about epistemology. Tsai Yuanpei was so influenced by his years at Leipzig and Berlin, he wanted to have academic freedom on the German model, which means you can have any kind of criticism, but no political action, please. That couldn't possibly work in a China 
where knowledge is demonstrated through action. And in, if you go really radical, it's Singer. So you have action first and then knowledge. So we have Tao Singer. He came back from John Dewey, calling himself knowledge, uh, Tao Knowledge Action. Then he said, no, we had Wang Yang Ming much earlier. Tao Action Knowledge. So this um, necessity to put your knowledge into action, I think is very fundamental. I did a book long ago, A Century of Cultural Conflict. Why could the Western University never be fully integrated into a Chinese environment? Because the epistemological roots are so different and so deep. I was privileged to be living in Beijing both before and after the Tiananmen events. I actually marched with the students before made congee for them to eat on Tiananmen Square. And then I came back after June 4th to work in the Canadian Embassy in a totally different Beijing. So I, I really had a deep sense of, you know, everything connected with that. And in the years afterwards, I was working with the World Bank and others, trying to persuade the Chinese to expand their higher education because the Dashie Sang, the Chinese the student in the 50s, was the future cadre. Every student was going to be assigned a cadre position. And it was a tiny elite. So that was really what the Cultural Revolution rejected wholly. But then in the 90s, the fear was, oh, if we expand, we're going to have lots more protesting students on the street. How will we deal with that? When they finally did expand, starting in 1999, and we did a book on that, from 3 million to 30 million in seven years, and over, no other country has done that. Guess what? Students are no longer Dashe Sang. They are just ordinary people trying to find jobs, struggling and all the pressures of the new capitalist, neoliberal regime. And so this now recent emergence of the, that Fabio has told us about is really so interesting and something really to watch. So we cannot use our Western frames and terms to try to interpret. We have to try to see it from inside. So I just wanted to share those very brief um, thoughts with all of you in order to leave time for Tim, who's going to follow me, Tim Cheek, and then also for lots of discussion. Thank you so much, David. You've gotten the round robin tonight. The, I want to make two points, one about uh, students as intellectuals and then challenges for today, because I think what uh, Fabio Lanza has given us uh, has been a really rich amount and a challenge to how we think about modern Chinese history and the role of students and intellectuals. They, uh, th but one thing to keep in mind is that the students were a new social category, his own work has uh, shown that, and they became part of this thing called intellectuals or jishifanzi, which are also a new social category in the 20th century, but of course one that builds on a very long-term one. And so why were students in, expected to be political? Uh, Ruth Heho, Dr. Heho talked about the, the uh, uh, traditional uh, habits of students and also the uh, influence from Taiyu uh, and uh, Pei in Germany. But of course, these are the, the Shri Sheng were the, were the Shengyuan. They were the, they were the, the inheritors of the first of the student, three levels of the degrees in Qing Dynasty, uh, the, the, um, uh, uh, the uh, Confucian examination system. And exactly, if, if in the 1950s students were to become the next cadres, the, 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 the gambu, they were going to be the new scholar officials, of course, uh, in, in late imperial China, except, of course, for the obvious fact that 90% of them didn't get the jobs. Uh, so that means that 90% of the educated uh, uh, students, if you like, in the 19th century, 18th century, uh, were not going directly into government. So there was always a role for educated people outside of government, but it was always oriented to an orthodox set to government. And the real challenge of 1919 was uh, that these people who were going to be either be a government or be a serving orthodox culture started getting uppity and started to be revolutionary, if you like. And I think that that is a tradition that is uh, defined Chinese intellectuals for the 20th century. They are, uh, as, as we have said, uh, most Chinese intellectuals are not marching on the street. They're doing their job. And that doesn't mean that they don't care about problems in their government any more than we don't worry about problems with our government. And I think you, many of you are going to vote this week or next. I hope so.
or be fined $20. All right. So there's this tension between serving your system and challenging your system that I think that we have that is very rich and living. And I love the closing of uh, uh, Dr. Lanz's uh, presentation with the Marxist Student Association at Peking University giving the government a hard time. Long may they do it. So, so I want to close with two contemporary challenges. Uh, one is social and one is political. We're talking about this idea, idea and this sense of what our, our students, and uh, Dr. Heho mentioned that after increasing the number of university students so hugely in the early 2000s that they're no longer students in that magical sense, but just really um, unemployed young people or people who are looking for employment. And um, I think that the, the social challenges, I would call that professionalization. That the real challenge to the political student tradition in China is professionalization. Uh, uh, you want to get a good job, uh, that's, it's depoliticization. As, some scholars have put it. And the second, of course, is political. And that we are now living under the regime of Xi Jinping's orthodoxy. So the Communist Party has made it very clear, no more whinging, right? no more complaining, get back to work. So the challenge for uh, students who wish to be politically active is even more challenging today. Thank you. And um, lastly, Professor Wan Sun. I was uh, asked by Luigi to give another dimension to this uh, topic, which is on the uh, Chinese students outside China. Um, just hearing uh, Fabio talking about 1989 um, brought me back to 30 years ago when Chinese students outside China's their attitude to the Chinese state couldn't be any more different to what we see today. Um, I remember after Tiananmen and... Um, the, after what's happened in the Tiananmen Square, the students in uh, outside China, that is in Australia, in in Europe, in North America, in, in Canada, um, felt uh, collectively felt shocked and appalled and saddened by what was happening, and uh, they made their um, reactions to 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 what's going on in the Tiananmen Square very very clear to the Chinese government. And uh, that actually led to some kind of uh, student movements uh, outside China, which in Australia uh, took the form of the uh, local Chinese, uh, of the Chinese students lobbying the, uh, uh, then the Hawke government to let them stay in Australia because they were uh, worried and they were fearful of returning to China. I think there were similar kind of scenarios played out in other parts of the, uh, uh, other of the world where Chinese students were. And then fast back from 1989 to, uh, to the beginning of the uh, uh, millennial. Um, I wrote my first book, in, uh, which was published in 2002. And I remember I, uh, it's called Leaving China. It's about this, this cohort of Chinese students who have left China after economic reform and now gone overseas to study. And I remember I finished my book in the, in, in the conclusion by saying, because when I actually finished the conclusion, China just won the Olympic uh, uh, the bid to host the Olympic uh, in 2002. And that won the bid in 2002, but then went on to have the Olympic in 2008. But when, actually, I remember it's the May 2008, the Olympic torch relay was going around the world, and it was in Canberra, and it was in different, some big major global cities in the world. And uh, uh, there were some um, anti-Chinese protests going on, some pro-Tibetan and other human rights groups. And the Chinese students then um, um, organized themselves and made themselves uh, uh, made their stand very clear that this time they were with China and they were supporting the Chinese government. They're pro-Olympic, and that actually caught uh, 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 the whole world by surprise because they suddenly people started to scratch their heads and try to understand where does this patriotism come from and where does nationalism come from. I remember colleagues such as Paul Natnieri and his uh, collaborators wrote an interesting article called Cosmopolitan 
nationalists, calling these students cosmopolitan nationalism, nationalists. And, and then that was 2008, and then fast forward to now, you will see that during the last decade or so, that from time to time, in the Western uh, world, where Chinese students uh, tend to live and study, you see from time to time incidents such as uh, uh, right? where incidents happened where the Chinese students felt that China was demonized or China was insulted, and the students were not usually are not happy with it. They would take collective action, and then. And when I actually wrote the, that book in the first time, I was actually looking at the power of the internet. I didn't know what WeChat was. We knew, nobody knew. Ten years later, it was all about WeChat. So with the social media uh, now happening in a really, really big way, we see how the, how the Ruhua Shijian nowadays got itself played out in the Chinese social media platform. For instance, you the Chinese students here probably have heard about or maybe even participated in the discussion of uh, uh, Yang Shuping incident. Uh, this Chinese student who is, uh, who is a student in the Maryland, University of Maryland who, made, who was in her commencement speech uh, telling people how much she loved the freedom and uh, democracy in the United States and, and how she uh, thinks that it's, you know, it's the oxygen, it's the air, and how she loved to breathe the pure air of democracy and so on and so forth. So forth. And then she just instantly became the uh, person that uh, most Chinese students outside China love to hate. And uh, she very quickly realized that she, she, she's, um, she's, she's became a very popular figure among some people, but she also became a very unpopular figure among others. So the, the Chinese student activism, if you like, in this case is, is pro-China if not necessarily pro-PRC, uh, pro if not necessarily pro-CCP. And it's very interesting. And so you might see why that's the case. And this, of course, the, the most sort of uh, easy explanation is the strength of China's uh, state uh, patriotic education, right? But I also happen to believe that I've written in my work that we also need to look at the students when they go leave China and they come to the other parts of the world, they are identity have changed, their politics has changed because they realize for the first time they are the racial other. They have experienced racism, they have experienced, have experienced being marginalized in a different country, and also maybe some of the students realize that for the first time that their teachers and lectures are not as enlightened and as well educated about China as they should. For instance, in Australia for the last couple of um, years you've got a a couple of incidents where the Chinese students protest the lectures about them, um, you know, uh, not not putting sort of not talking about Taiwan and Tibet in a way that is in line with the Chinese government. Because and and then again they took to WeChat and social media to make their uh, sort of uh, uh, voices heard. Uh, and I think this is kind of very, very interesting development, if you like. And it's always a truism to say that it's always easy to love China when you're away from it, right? And uh, I think that uh, that actually is really is the case with the, the overseas Chinese students. So I'll finish by saying two things about the uh, this students' activism outside China for the last decade or so. One is that it's actually very, very different from that kind of student activism that Fabio was talking about, which is critical of the state and critical of the government. They are actually um, um, in support of the state and sometimes uh, of, of China. Sometimes they're actually uh, in support of the, the government as well. And then the, the other one is that is, is the, the student activism become very globalized, it's become technologized and become very, very deterritorialized and it become very mediated as well. So you don't necessarily see students going on the streets and, and shouting slogans and they do that from time to time, but most of the time they talk to the WeChat and make their voices heard. Thank you. Thanks. Um, thank you very much, Wanding. Um, okay, we've covered <laughs> a lot already in the, um, the uh, presentations this evening. The, the national Chinese story that we've heard and then the, the international context that was added at the end there, because when we think back about 
1989, there, are, there is a Chinese story to be told, obviously, but we can, we can classify these moments in an international context as well. If we think about post-World War I activism, the betrayals of the Versailles Treaty, this is not unique to, to China. Of course, 1989, we think about the, the crumbling of the, um, the socialist bloc uh, as well, and we can uh, align Chinese student protests with that. And then, but then it becomes a bit more difficult to think about looking forward. You know, what is China today? How do we categorize it? It seems to have become much more sui generis or something in, the, in that sense. And so thinking about the nature of student activism in China and the possibility of international linkages, um, do such possibilities exist? I mean, are students in China thinking about themselves as part of, a, say, a global student movement in any way? Are, is there any interest in China um, among um, students there as to say what's going on regarding the, the movements um, around climate change, um, which mm -hmm. has been you know, a feature of high school activism and campus activism here. Um, and, and acknowledging what you're saying, one thing about um, the, um, you know, the, the, the quite um, prominent presence of uh, patriotic activism, I guess we could talk about um, here in Australia, uh, nonetheless, the, you know, the existence of dissident currents as well among the Chinese student population uh, living outside China. What role can they play in the future of Chinese student activism uh, in China? Um, any thoughts on, on the, that question that you had would be very interesting if anyone would like to respond. Make Fabio work. Mm. Would you oh, like I'm, to, I'm supposed you, to go first? Fabio? Yeah. Um, got a difficult question. Um, well, I don't want to be the, the I'd give you the, the, the Marxist answer um, here, but, um, and I don't know if the students actually see that, the Marxist student protesting today see that, but it seems to me that one thing that China is actually not different, not sui generis, mm. is in the, um, <clears throat> it, it's actually quite not literally not sui generis, it's the, in the problem of the crisis of capitalism. So these the students identify specific problems of inequalities, of of massive difference, of of you know oppression of workers, of migrants. In this case, internal migrants, not external migrants, that are in, very similar to the protests, to, to, to the, the larger protests that we see, and the larger you know dissatisfaction with capitalism that you see, or capitalist society that you see everywhere from Europe to America to Australia. So in this sense, there is clearly um, the potential for a global connection. But, uh, and the, the climate, climate part is too, but, uh, but I also want to mention that you have seen that I mentioned the, the female um, student and worker rights activist came to prominence uh, as part of the Chinese Me Too movement, um, because she was uh, the leading, uh, one of the leading um, person uh, attacking, uh, I think, some professor at at at, uh, at, at Beida and some other university. So again, it's a, it's a different connection, but there is a connection there. I think. Thank you. Um, what I feel very concerned about right now, I was just in touch with a young German. A journalist in Beijing who speaks fluent Chinese, lived there for five years, wanted to interview Beida students about the 100th anniversary. Mm. Only one student was willing to talk mm -hmm. to her. Mm -hmm. So the rest are all afraid of being observed, talking mm. to a foreigner and being reported. And the other thing that I feel very strongly is students are simply not allowed to know their own history. They're not allowed to know what happened in June of 89, let alone earlier movements. It's a totally controlled history they're given. The hopeful side of it is that, and I think C can't stop this, we still have huge numbers of visiting doctoral students going all over the world, visiting scholars going all over the world. Most of them go back. So they definitely get educated when they're outside of China. And so that door is not being closed. And I think it's very, very important for those of us who are working with China, I try to do this every year, to go back regularly and to keep in touch. Mao could close the door so no one could leave, but Xi can't do that. I don't think he has a hope for doing that. So that's the one place where there's possibility, even with this AI surveillance and so on, that's getting more and more intensive. So that's where my hope lies in terms of um, students being able to connect and, and be critical. Thanks. Um, thank you. Um, I, I think it's important that we say that yes. 
the acceptance of Chinese students at this university cannot be contingent on those students professing or refraining from professing any particular political position. Once we put ourselves in that position, then the rights of those students are, are in danger. And I, and I do share your concerns that there have been various narratives emerging recently uh, around Chinese students that have, have come close to expressing um, that, that view of Chinese students. If people don't like the views that, that any member of the university community happens to hold, then the best thing that we can do is, is hold open forums such as this, where uh, people are free to express viewpoints from, from all sorts of different directions. And I'm, so I'm, you know, I'm very pleased to see um, such a large presence of people who I assume to be Chinese students um, here in the audience today. So I want to thank them, and I want to thank everyone else uh, as well for, for coming um, tonight. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.